Peace be with you, and welcome to The Word Unveiled. Our program is one in the American Saints, Blessed, Venerables, and Servants of God series. The subject of our program is Bishop Frederick Berriga. Fifteen miles from any house, in the deep snow, an intensely cold night, no fire, completely exhausted, there was no choice but to walk on or to freeze. God demands nothing else from you but your goodwill. This is a quote from Bishop Berriga. This program is produced by St. Malachy Church, and St. Malachy is uh, one of four churches in a family of parishes that includes St. Malachy, St. Paul of Tarsus, St. Ronald, and St. Thecla Church and School. My name is Gordon Peck. As in all things, let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious and most merciful God, give us ears to hear your words, a mind to comprehend your meaning, and hearts that will allow your word to take root in our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Irenaeus Frederick Berraga was born on June 29, 1797, in his family's manor house at Malavas, near the Car Car Carniolan village of Dobrignik, which is today in, in the town of Trebnia in Slovenia. If you're Slovenian, you might say I mispronounced that. His father was Johann Nepomak Beraga, and his mother was Maria Catherine Josefa Beraga. She died in 1808 when Beraga was only nine years old. The family was relatively affluent, and Frederick was the fourth of five children. Now, Beraga came of age during the Napoleonic Wars in which his native Slovenia came to be ruled by France, Germany, and Austria. It kept changing hands. As a result, he learned many languages, including German, French, English, Slovenian, Latin, and surprisingly, Hebrew. After his parents' death, he went to live in the home of Juris Dolinar, who was a lay professor at the diocesan seminary at Ljubljana. And and there he became engaged to Dolinar's daughter, and he went on to law school in Ljubljana to support her and his obligations for the inherited manor house. Well, while he was at law school, he met a man by the name of Clement Hofbauer, who would become a future saint, and he influenced his desire to serve the church. So... Baraga has to inform his heartbroken fiance of the decision, and he gives his part of the manor house to his younger sister. So he gives up his inheritance, and he gives up uh, his vocation of marriage. And he is then ordained a Catholic priest on September 21st, 1823, in the cathedral at Ljubljana. And he was recruited to promote Jansenism by local bishops. But he was opposed to it. He sought and received reassignment. And Jansenism was a heresy. It was a theological movement within Catholicism, within the church, that is, that emphasized original sin, human depravity, and the necessity of divine grace and predestination. It was declared a heresy by the church. The movement originated with the work of the Dutch theologian Cornelius Johnson, who died in 1638, at least 100 years before Berga. 
and through the 17th and into the 18th century, Jansenism gained some support in certain areas of France and in Central Europe. But it was opposed by many within the Catholic Church, and Pope Innocent X in 1653 condemned five cardinal doctrines of Jansenism as heretical, especially the relationship between human free will and efficacious grace, and the underlying teachings were which approach Calvinism. But in spite of that, it was still being promoted by some priests, and this is what Berga got mixed up in, and he said, I want no part of it. So he would be reassigned, and he'd be leaving Slovenia quite soon. When he was learning his faith, on the other side of the world, the Ojibwa people in North America were undergoing significant upheaval and transformation in their traditional lifestyle. Treaties between the Ojibwa people and the United States were forcing all the indigenous nations east of the Mississippi, which were described as civilization efforts, and, and these were meant that, that all indigenous people either had to become farmers and accept Christianity and the laws of the United States, or they would be re removed to the west of uh, the Mississippi River into what was known as Indian Territory and later became shrunk even farther and became the state of Oklahoma. So missionaries from many Protestant denominations were also setting their sights on the Ojibwa and they were coming into Michigan and, and other regions to uh, proselytize the people. Now we have the Ojibwa prophecy and the black robes. The Ojibwa people traditionally came from Madeline Island prior to the arrival of the Europeans, and a prophecy within their culture told them that they would find food on the water. Well, it turned out this food was wild rice, and it became a staple food for the Ojibwa people for hundreds of years. They trapped beaver, they, they uh, shot deer, and they, they ate meat, but, they, but, the, but the rice, the wild rice, uh, is what kept their, their nation going. And this prophecy also told of the arrival of people that wore black robes. And that turned out to be the French Jesuit priest from Montreal beginning in the 1640s and continuing into the 1750s. These Jesuit priests spoke French, like the fur traders that had come into their region, but they won the hearts of the Ojibwa people because uh, of equal sharing of the religion and understanding of the Ojibwa people's religion. Now, the Ojibwa nation sided with the British in the War of 1812, and that caused them to lose significant tracts of land as recompense when the United States won that war. In 1819, while Beraga was still in law school back in Slovenia, the United States government uh, enacted the Civilization Fund Act. Well, the Ojibwa people needed help. At this time, their lands in northern Michigan fell within the Diocese of Cincinnati. Bishop Fenwick, who was the bishop in Cincinnati, was in desperate need of missionary priests, and so he sent Father Reese, who was later to be the first bishop of Detroit, to Rome, seeking priests interested in this special work. And together they began to implore upon Europe the need for evangelizing these indigenous people of the Great Lakes. Father Baraga served in several parishes in Slovenia between the years of 1823 and 1830. Then he heard about a new mission group in Vienna that was searching for priests willing to go to the North American wilderness to convert the indigenous people to Christianity. 
the Leopoldine Society, as it was called, raised money to establish parishes, parishes in remote regions of the United States and Canada, and Berga became their first missionary to be sent to the United States. Father Berga arrived in Cincinnati, Ohio in mid-January in 1831, and he began studying the language of the Ojibwa, which was called Anishinaabe in their own tongue, in preparation for his first assignment. He was aided by his innate gift of languages. Remember, he could speak many different languages. He had a talent for it. And he began to develop an understanding of the Ojibwa language from a Métis. Métis is somebody who is half Ojibwa and half European, most likely French-Canadian. And this person was attending the seminary in Cincinnati. So he taught Father Baraga the Ojibwa language. And not long afterwards, he was sent to the mission of the Ojibwa people, living at and around Larbe Crochet, which is a, was a settlement just south and west of the Straits of Mackinac on the Lake Michigan side. And here, we began, here he began learning and identifying the words from the Ojibwa people that formed the basis of the famous Ojibwa Dictionary, which is still considered the definitive Ojibwe Dictionary to date. And Frederick Barraga wrote it. Now, Bishop Fenwick had brought Father Barraga to Larb Crochet, and he bid him leave, and he was with him as well, and he had to return to Cincinnati, and he was slightly envious of Father Barraga's upcoming mission amongst the Ojibwa people in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Father Barraga readily ex uh, was accepted in, into these remote communities, rekindling the good feeling that had existed in the time of the black robes or the French missionaries from a uh, hundred years previous. He was extremely happy of how the Ojibwa reacted to his use of their language, and they in turn were anxious to teach him more about themselves. So Father Baraga would often find that the villages he visited had built a chapel for him prior to his visit. So they built a little church, knowing he's coming to their village. And he realized that he couldn't just preach to the Ojibwa, he needed simple texts in their language explaining the Catholic Catechism. So he composed a question and answer form uh, of, in, a, in a booklet that um, using their native language as he had learned it. And he also wrote prayer books and guides for worship liturgies in the Ojibwa language. And he had all of this printed in far off Detroit in 1832, and then it was sent back to him in the Upper Peninsula for distribution to his new converts. In the summer of 1835, Father Barraga shifted his focus northward to La Pointe. This was an outpost of the American Fur Company on Lake Superior in the Wisconsin Territory. So he's off, off Lake Superior, and he's in the western end of the lake. His new field of endeavor included the Apostle Islands, one of which had a trading post which dated back to 1693, the time of the black robes and the French fur traders. The village on this island was populated by an old retired fur traders of the American Fur Company. This was the empire that was built by John Jacob Astor, and the time of the fur trade, however, by, by this time had passed. Uh, most of the areas were trapped out, and the fur trade had moved farther west. But these people were still there. So these islands were home to many Ojibwa and some Métis, that is half-breed, who worked as loggers, fishermen, and miners. And this is the, a map of his, uh, his area of endeavor. He, he uh, began down around Grand Rapids. He moved up to the Leelanau Peninsula area. He went into Alarbe Crochet, 
near Mackinac to Sault Ste. Marie, over to Escanaba to Nagani or Marquette, uh, into Lance, into the Keweenaw Peninsula, and finally all the way over to La Pointe, which is in the Apostle Islands, which is actually off the coast of Wisconsin. So he he traveled over the entire Ojibwa world. Now, a little bit about the Ojibwa. Each member of the Ojibwa people are born into one or another clan, and marriage between members of the same clan is forbidden for health reasons. So just as we don't marry brothers and sisters, they did not marry within a clan. You had to marry somebody in a different clan. And there were many clans, and they were uh, typically named after animals. They had colors associated with them, and they also had qualities. So if you were in the loon clan, then you would uh, be a leader. In Crane clan, you're also a leader. If you're in the eagle clan, you would tend to be a spiritualist. Uh, if you're in the marten clan, uh, like a fox-like animal, you would be a warrior or a hunter. So they had all different um, uh, attributes associated with an animal. And members of each clan considered, uh, were considered relatives, and each possessed a quality that is thought to show itself in their conduct. So they took on those characteristics. The Eagle Clan evolved to include intermarriage with peoples not of the Ojibwa nation by birth. Now, this is fascinating. The Ojibwa creation stories. Kichimanitu, the great creator god, peoples the earth. The original people, the Anishinaabe, strayed from harmonious ways. They fought with each other. Kichimanitu, the creator, decides to purify earth with a great washing, a flood. Nanabuzu, the man, and a few animals cling to a log floating on the waters. Everything else is washed away in the flood. Who will dive down and get some soil from the bottom of the lake from which to make a new earth? Well, many of the animals try, but they fail. They can't hold their breath long enough to get down to, to where the soil is. But the muskrat, the little muskrat, decides to do it. And he gets all the way down to the bottom. He scoops up a little bit of earth with his paw but as he's coming up, he can't hold his breath long enough, and he rises to the surface, but he dies. So he sacrifices his life to give life to others. Turtle accepts the burden of the new earth, which they put the, the earth on the back of the turtle, and that expands and becomes the world for the people to live in. Now, naming of all creation. There's another story in Ojibwa culture where Kichimanitu, again, did not name any of the parts of creation, but asked my Inga, the wolf, to join Nanabuzu, the first man, to name all that the creator made. Sound familiar? They gave names to everything and told Kichimanitu what they had accomplished, when they had accomplished this task. And Kichimanitu told them that they must go their separate ways, but that they all would always be brothers, always linked in life. That is the man and the wolf. So the Anishinaabe held wolf in high regard. And when they were hungry, wolf was hungry. And when wolf suffered, the Anishinaabe suffered. The eagle and the Anishinaabe. The creator, distressed by people's actions, considers another flood to clean the world of unfaithfulness. He sends Megizi, the eagle, to search for faithful people, and he allows four days for the search. The eagle flies over the desert, over the mountains, over the plains, but he cannot find any faithful or thankful people 
after three days. On the fourth day, Eagle finds a single family in prayer and prays of Creator's gifts. Eagle tells Creator that he saw humility, truth, respect, thanks, and praise among this single family. Creator rejoices and spares the world. Father Berga sees the inherent goodness of these stories, and he helps relate the gospel message to those people for their benefit. Yet he does more than merely teach. He loves them as the gospel compels us to love our fellow men. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus taught us. And Father Berga does. He sees the uh, Ojibwe as being his brothers. In fact, they're his brothers, his sisters. He sees them as being his children and they in turn love him the same way. So mission churches are built in several villages of the Ojibwa, and Father Baraga will visit these mission churches repeatedly as he continually uh, circulates among the people. He begins to baptize the Ojibwa who requests the sacrament. In his lifetime, he'll baptize thousands. And Father Baraga goes to the assistance of anyone who needs him. He travels hundreds of miles in summer and winter, his mode of travel in winter becomes the snowshoe, and he will thereafter be known as the snowshoe priest. Father Berga became the priest, the counselor, the physician, the friend, the legal advocate for all of these people. Because not long after he arrived in the North Country, the government attempted to put in place a plan for removing the Ojibwa from their land, just like they had removed the Cherokee and the uh, you know, all the eastern nations. So they want to do this with the uh, people of the upper Great Lakes. So the early treaties that were signed uh, allowed the, would allow the Ojibwa to remain for many years before this relocation would be attempted. But they changed it to only two years, so Father Baraga had to kind of set aside his priest's role and go uh, call on his lawyer skills and go to work for his people. So he began to keep a diary written in several languages. He preserved the events of his missionary challenges. And in 1850s, uh, Northern Michigan experienced a population explosion of sorts because copper and precious metals were found in the North Country and people started to go there to mine for these metals. This occurred near Houghton, Ontonagon, and Marquette. So it's in his territory. And that presented a challenge for Father Baraga because now he had to meet the needs of the miners as well as his beloved Ojibwe, and he had to keep peace between them. So Father Baraga met the high chief of the Ojibwe, Chief Buffalo, and began to work to retain the Ottawa lands for the people. So here's where he puts on his lawyer's hat. Uh, when, they were, when their lands were threatened with confiscation, Father Baraga purchased land adjacent to tribal lands in his own name through funds that he raised by writing to people in Europe and through Bishop Fenwick and others in Cincinnati. So he got as much money as he could together and he bought land and then he gave it to the, uh, to the Ojibwa people. And their plight began, became known through published works of Father Baraga and Chief Buffalo never thought he would have this role, but he becomes a statesman in negotiations with the United States government. In 1850, another initiative by the government attempts to remove the Ojibwe once more, and now they want to send them to Oklahoma with the other nations. But Bishop Baraga and Chief Buffalo, they remained steadfast, and they legally countered each move by the government in a legal manner in the courts 
and they were ultimately successful, Yahoo, in 1854, when tribal reservations were established in the lands of the food upon the water, in other words, the, the wild rice. So the lands that the uh, Ojibwa people were on became reservations, they became their land. The government recognized them as a separate independent nation. In the following year, Chief Buffalo asked to be baptized by Father Baraga, and soon thereafter he died and was buried at the Mission Church on Madeline Island. Another event happened about this time. An artist by the name of Eastman Johnson came into the area, and he helped to make the plight of the Ojibwa known uh, to many people and, and, uh, and, and provided a, a lot of good publicity for the cause. Uh, these paintings and drawings that he produced of Ojibwa people were, um, were shown in the eastern areas, and so Father Baraga's fundraising was assisted uh, by uh, promotion of the goodness of the Ojibwa people. Another artist that contributed to an understanding of the Ojibwa was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the poet who wrote, wrote the famous poem Hiawatha. And I just want to share a little bit of this because uh, kind of sounds like Bishop Baraga got into this. Um, and the noble Hiawatha, with his hands aloft extended, held aloft in sign of welcome, waited full of exultation till the birch canoe with paddles grated on the shining pebbles, stranded on the sandy margin till the black-robed chief, the pale face with a cross upon his bosom, landed on the sandy margin. Then the joyous Hiawatha cried aloud and spake in this wise, Beautiful is the sun, O strangers, when you come so far to see us. All our town in peace awaits you. All our doors stand open for you. You shall enter all our wigwams for the heart's right hand we give you. And that's really the, the reaction that the Ojibwa people had to Bishop Baraga throughout his lifetime. Now, Bishop Baraga was almost lost. Um, I forgot what year it was, but he was crossing... Uh, Lake Superior in the western end, and he was uh, he was going up into Canada, to where some of the Ojibwa people were living, and they were they didn't have much time. Bishop Berger had to be a lot of different places, so he he uh, was cutting across the lake with another person, and a storm came up, and it looked like they were going to be swamped, and drowned. But Bishop Berger just said, "Have faith, pray," and they did, and they found a patch of flat water in the middle of the storm and they followed that right to shore and when they got to shore in uh it's in northern minnesota uh he, he erected a cross of thanksgiving people later went back to that spot and erected this stone cross and the little river that comes out there is now known as cross river so there was hardly any uh, locality on the lake which is not connected with the history of his life this was written by john john Cole in the, his book, Kichigami, written in 1855 when he had uh, visited and heard about Bishop, uh, Father Baraga at that time. So there was hardly a locality on the lake which is not connected with the history of his life, either because he built a chapel there or wrote a pious book or founded an Indian mission or else underwent danger and adventures there in which he felt that heaven was protecting him. In 1853, Father Baraga was named Bishop of the newly created Diocese of Sault Ste. Marie. And on the 23rd of October, 1865, uh, by apostolic authority, he transferred his see from Sault Ste. Marie to Marquette. 
and the newly created diocese now stretched from Sault Ste. Marie in the east, past Marquette, past the Madeline Islands to Minnesota, and even northward into Canada on the southern shore of, uh, or northern shore of Lake Superior. This is a photo of Bishop Berger's residence in Marquette. It has been preserved. It is a museum and shrine to him. Um, his, this is his coat of arms. <coughs> Excuse me. And it says, Unum est necessarium. And that means one thing is necessary, one thing alone. And if you recall the story of Jesus being in the home of Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to the word while Martha was fussing with the dinner and the table and all those little things. And uh, when Martha complained to Jesus that Mary wasn't helping, Jesus told her, only one thing is necessary. You know, you're, you're busy about a lot of things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. So uh, Bishop Berga took that phrase as his, uh, as his motto for his coat of arms. In 1866, Bishop Berga joined his fellow bishops for a national conclave in Baltimore. And when in Baltimore, he suffered one and perhaps two strokes. He begged his fellow bishops to put him on the train so that he might get home to his beloved Ojibwa people. Don't put him in a hospital. He, he told them he felt better. Don't keep him from his people. And so they complied. They put him on the train, and he got back to his people. And then two years later, at age 70, he died in Marquette. And at the time of his death, the shepherd looked very much like the sheep of the flock. In this photo, you can see the Roman collar, and you can see a crucifix around his neck. But the outer garment and the, and the uh, stole around his neck is very much Ojibwa in pattern and design. So the path to sainthood, there are four stages. The first stage is the process where you identify a person who has lived an exemplary life and faith. You investigate that person's life, uh, and you write a paper known as a positio or position paper, and that's sent to the Vatican. For Bishop Berga, the positio was accepted, and Bishop Berga was declared to be a servant of God. That's the first stage in 1998. And then after additional information is uh, collected and reviewed, Bishop Berga was declared venerable. Uh, that means to be heroic in nature. That's the second stage. And that happened on May 10th, 2012, by Pope Benedict XVI. Now, one medical miracle is required to be declared blessed, the third stage. A miracle has been submitted for review for the cause of Bishop Berger's beatification. And at this time, we're still waiting to hear. And then one additional medical miracle is needed, which must occur after beatification, and that is required to be declared a, a saint the canonization process, the fourth stage. So the work on the preparation for the cause of Bishop Frederick Berga was opened in 1952 by Thomas Lawrence Noah. He was the diocese's eighth bishop, and the formal canonization process began in 1973. Bishop Berga was declared venerable by Pope Benedict XVI on May 10, 2012, and the cause for his canonization continues. Now, what's his legacy? Well, the village of Baraga, Baraga Township, 
Baraga County and Baraga State Park, all bear his name, and they're all in Michigan. An Ontario provincial plaque at Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Church in Goulet Bay, Ontario, is, is devoted to him. A memorial sculpture of him by Jackie Anderson is located in Lance, Michigan. Bishop Baraga Catholic School in Iron Mountain, Michigan, is of course named for him. Bishop Baraga Catholic School in Sheboygan, Michigan. The Baraga Memorial in Schroeder, Minnesota, that's the Cross River. The Shrine in La Crosse, Wisconsin. The Bronze Statue of Baraga in Grand Rapids. And Baraga Broadcasting, which is six Catholic radio stations which serve northern Michigan. These are all named for Bishop Baraga. This is his first church, and there's a Michigan historical site marker uh, at this site, which declares that it was here uh, on May 15, 1832, that uh, Father Baraga began his missionary work in the Upper Peninsula. His uh, former residence in Marquette is a museum. Uh, he, there are some of his vestments, which very much bear the mark of the Ojibwa Nation in pattern and design. And the U.S. Postal Service in 1984 issued a 13 cent commemorative postcard honoring Frederick Baraga and his mission uh, in North America. And Bishop Baraga's remains are buried in a crypt in the cathedral in Marquette, Michigan. So shall we close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thanks for listening. Peace be with you.